Good morning again. Um, I am going to be reading scripture today. Um, it is from Acts 6, verses 8 through 15 in the CSB translation. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there um, while you're getting there. My name is Bailey Lewandowski. My husband, Austin, and I have been attending Crosspoint um, since 2020 when we were meeting out in the parking lot in the scorching hot heat. So it is good to be in the nice warm building today. Let's hear God's word. Acts 6, 8 through 15. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom in the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to, to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against his holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bailey. So happy new year, church. It's good to see you. Thank you for gathering uh, together this morning. Uh, this morning we go back into the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts uh, starting in September, took a break during Christmas, and we uh, resume it this Sunday in the passage that Bailey read there. We are going to make our way all the way through chapter 7, and believe it or not, we will not read all the verses for today, uh, because this is the longest recorded message in the book of Acts by Stephen, and so that would make it the longest recorded message in Crosspoint's history if I preached an entire message on top of Stephen's as well. So we will skip some parts, but look at it uh, thematically and look at it uh, as a whole. Uh, Tony Morita said this, sometimes Christ-like living leads to Christ-like dying. That's the story of Stephen who is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Stephen is the first recorded martyr after the New Testament church has launched. His story is recorded here. Sometimes Christ-like living leads to Christ-like dying. That's the story of millions of Christian martyrs throughout the centuries, brothers and sisters in Christ who have faithfully uh, sought to be a witness, an ambassador for Jesus Christ to people in need of the gospel and ended up dying or being killed for their faith. Persecution.com is a great resource if you want to learn more about modern-day martyrdom as well as Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an older book, but it is a uh, phenomenal collection of martyrs throughout the history and being encouraged by their faith walking, so I commend those resources to you. It's easy to sit here in rural Midwest and kind of hold dying for one's faith at arm's length, thinking, well, I doubt if that's going to be my story. None of us know the future. 
By no means am I implying that we should live in fear, for we are exhorted repeatedly throughout the scriptures to not live in fear, for our God is with us. But I do believe throughout this, through this text there are encouragements for us, for all Christ's followers are called to be witnesses for him. That was Jesus' commission in Acts 1.8, and we get to walk with one of those witnesses in this passage. We get to be encouraged not only by Stephen's Jesus abiding, uh, Jesus reflecting walk in life, but also by the message that he has uh, sought to proclaim to those who opposed him, a message that has themes in it which are still relevant to this day, still encouragements as we look into a new year ahead. Uh, Luke describes Stephen here as full of grace and power. And if I were to have a prayer for us as we think about how the Lord, how we might be described as the Lord's people in, in the new year, it would be full of grace and power. And we get to see that on display in this passage. Some context in the storyline of, uh, of Acts. We're in chapter 6, the first five chapters, we have seen the Holy Spirit poured out, come in the place of Jesus who has ascended to heaven. The New Testament church has launched. It's grown by thousands. Thus far, the church has been doing ministry and mission in the city of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus said it would begin in Acts 1.8. He said this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So as we turn our page into Acts 8 next Sunday, we move into the regions of Judea and Samaria. We see the mission spread there as a result of the persecution that the church is facing, persecution that kind of culminates here in the death of Stephen. Persecution has been a theme thus far in the book. In Acts 4, we see the religious leadership, which is opposed to the name of Jesus. They, they threaten the apostles, commanding them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus of Jesus, to which the apostles reject, for, for if they obeyed such a command from man, it would mean they have disobeyed then the commands of the Lord. They continue instead to boldly and faithfully and lovingly testify to Jesus Christ. So verbal threats. Then in Acts 5, the persecution escalates to not just verbal threats in jail time, but, but flogging, whipping the apostles 39 times over. The Sanhedrin ordered them again to not speak in the name of Jesus. And yet Luke writes in Acts 5 that the apostles went out after being flogged. They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name of Jesus. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, they're not going to obey the, the commands of man when those commands would cause them to disobey the commands of the Lord. Now the persecution will escalate far past flogging into death. Verse 8 again. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So who is Stephen? Well, he's not an apostle, but he is a servant leader in the early church. So thus far, persecution has been, uh, as far as Luke has recorded it, only toward the apostles. But now it's going to spread to an active member, a person in the church. Earlier in Acts 6, we read that he was a man full of faith and the spirit of God. He, along with six other godly men, were appointed by the church 
to care for a group of widows that, from a Hellenistic Jewish background who were being overlooked and not cared for well. This group of widows had come from, again, the Hellenistic Jewish background, meaning they'd grown up in other regions of the, of the world. They'd grown up in other regions outside of Jerusalem, and they had sought to come to Jerusalem. They hear the gospel. They convert from their Jewish background. They convert to Christ, and they begin to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And now these widows are in need of the love and support of the new church that has formed. And Stephen was helping organize that support. So who opposed Stephen and him testifying to the name of Jesus? Ironically, it was from Hellenistic Jews who were, who were still rejecting the name of Jesus. They didn't see Christ as the Messiah. Instead, they were still wrongly trusting in their good works to bring about salvation. They were unable, Scripture says there, to stand up against Stephen's spirit-filled wisdom. And so they then turned their efforts to trying to bring false charges and witnesses against him. So they take these charges to the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership of the Jewish faith, about 70-plus elders and scribes. Stephen is seized, according to verse 12, taken against his will and brought before the leadership. And in essence, it's the same charge the apostles faced earlier in Acts 4 and 5. You're proclaiming the name of Jesus. That in him there is forgiveness of sins. That salvation is found only through faith in Christ. That salvation is through faith alone and by grace alone and not by obedience to the law of Moses. That Jesus was the Messiah. It was promised throughout the Old Testament that he came. He lived a sinless life, fulfilling the law of Moses, bearing its weight in full, and yet was unjustly killed. Then rose from the dead on the third day. This Jesus, he is both Lord and Messiah. And we've seen throughout Acts 4 and 5 how the Sanhedrin are opposed to this gospel message. They are instead committed to trying to preserve their power, their man-made authority. They are unwilling to bow their knee to Jesus and put their faith in him. Instead, they are committed to keeping their faith in themselves, and as a result, they are puffed up with overwhelming self-righteousness. Stephen knows that. And yet he's also committed to be a spirit-empowered witness for Jesus. So, so even in the face of opposition, Stephen is going to testify to the name of Jesus. For all are invited to trust in his name. All are welcome to receive the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. My friends, all are welcome. All are invited. Opposition, if that was the theme for your 2023 toward the Lord Jesus, it doesn't have to be in the new year. It can be reception. It can be humility before the Lord receiving him, enjoying his grace. Stephen is given a platform to testify, and he will not waste it. He will recount the storyline of the Old Testament, a storyline that the Sanhedrin is very, very familiar with. A storyline here that has two themes to it. One is the Lord's continued uh, presence, his continual graciousness, his goodness toward his people. The other theme, unfortunately, is the people's continual resistance and rejection of the Lord's grace and goodness. So theme one, the Lord's grace. Theme two, the people's stubbornness, their opposition, their resistance. Storylines that continue to this day. Those haven't grown out of date. They're still relevant to this day. Verse two, Stephen begins with brothers and fathers. Listen, the God of glory. Stephen will begin and end his message 
with the God of glory, for that's where the story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, begins and ends. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. God calls out Abraham to follow him. He sovereignly chooses Abraham and pours out his grace on him with no merit of Abraham to earn that. And in verse 12, he promises to Abraham that through his family line, a great nation will come and that through his people, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. The Lord's grace abounds. The blessing of generations, multiplication, the blessing of land, the promises of the Lord toward his people, they are lavish. They are all by grace. And as a result, the people of, are called to worship the Lord in alone, in response to the grace that they have been shown, love and be devoted to him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that through these people who have been shown such lavish mercy and grace that they might be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests who represent the Lord to the nations, who reflect and exalt the God of glory through their words and through their way of life of worship. And in verse 8, the story continues with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, who fathers 12 sons. One of them is named Joseph. And the Lord's grace and protection was on Joseph. Stephen recounts, sold into slavery. And then verse 9, God was with him and rescued him out of his troubles. Favor and wisdom was shown to Joseph. And the Lord sustains his people through famine and great suffering. But then the other theme of the Old Testament starts to show up in verse 9. It says Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. The, the hardness, the stubbornness of the human heart, which describes not only Joseph's brothers, but also describes the Sanhedrin that Stephen is testifying before. Stephen moves on in the storyline to Moses. The Lord's faithfulness abounded toward his people. We're going to read 17 through 37. And I want you to see the theme of the Lord gracious, graciously raising up Moses to deliver his people from captivity, and yet his own people reject him. They say, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? So starting in verse 17. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, 
in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he, he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. The God of all glory saw his people in need of rescue and he raised up a deliverer who the Lord will use as an instrument in his hands to set his people free from slavery. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge, this one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out of led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Stephen is saying, Jesus is the better Moses. Just like Joseph. Moses was an Old Testament character who was pointing forward to Jesus, the hero, the Savior who will come. The one who will rescue them from the famine of sin, the famine that sin has left us in. The, Jesus will be raised up, the one who will break the chains of sin's oppression and deliver his people from his, through his death upon a cross. Jesus will be the one who will bring peace and remove the wall of hostility that sin causes. But then Stephen turns again to the theme of, again of how the people have received such lavish grace from the Lord. Having been so greatly loved, they turn away. They turn away from living for the one true God, and they turn toward living for themselves, for sin, for idols that are lifeless and created. Stephen says this, verse 39, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, Moses. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were, celebrated, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, and their rebellion toward the Lord leads to exile from the promised land. And yet, the Lord was still present with them, and his presence would not be contained by tents or tabernacles or buildings, for our God is an ever-present God. He is not contained by time, space, let alone buildings. And the God of all glory would send his one and only son to tabernacle with, to dwell with us in the flesh. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the, the better Joseph, the better Moses, the better David, the God of all glory has come not in a place, but in a person. The son of man, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet what Stephen is saying to the leaders is, you missed him. You missed him. Like Joseph's brothers, you grew jealous of him. Like your ancestors did to Moses, you pushed him aside. Your hearts turned back to Egypt. You did what your ancestors did in the past centuries. Now at this point in this message, here's what Stephen knows. He is a dead man walking, to put it bluntly. Christ-like living is going to lead to Christ-like dying. And yet, because his faith is in the risen Lord Jesus, death will be gain for him. For just like in Christ, Stephen will be raised to resurrection life. Eternal life is his. And earthly suffering 
persecution, even earthly death can't take that away. When Stephen began his message, there was a tone of uh, brothers and fathers and our father Abraham and uh, in a sense of us. Now it's going to shift. Now it's you because Stephen has departed from the broken paths of, of the ancestors before him. Stephen has departed and put his faith in Christ. So Stephen is no longer going to walk in the stubborn ways, but instead walk in humility and joyful worship to Jesus Christ. And so the tone is shifted. See, some of us come from previous generations of stiff-necked, proud, stubborn people who rejected the gospel and faith in Christ. Friends, again, you can walk in a new way. You can walk in a new way. You can get off the broad road that leads to destruction and walk on the narrow road that leads to life. A new family tree can be formed that's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and that can flourish in all seasons. The Sanhedrin here have heard the gospel proclaimed multiple times now, and they tragically will not walk in a new way. Instead, they'll walk in the same pattern of their forefathers and maintain a posture that is rebellious, resistant, stubborn, and proud. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Tones changed here. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you, did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. In verse 53 there, Stephen is telling them, Remember the law of Moses, which came from the Lord at Mount Sinai, that you are committed to living by, and yet, Sanhedrin, you fail at keeping those commandments. You, you fail at keeping the law perfectly. You boast in all that you know, and yet your knowledge puffs up, and instead of leading to humility before the Lord, it puffs you up. You're focused on the outward of your life, but your inward, your heart is far from the Lord, and as a result... You fail at keeping the two greatest commandments according to the Lord, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. Sanhedrin, you, you pretend you're batting a thousand on the law, but you're falling short. You're in need of saving grace, a heart transplant. You're in need of a Savior. His name is Jesus, the righteous one, and yet you killed him. You pushed him aside. You scoffed at him, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? You grew jealous of the glory shifting away from you and on to him. And so you schemed like Joseph's brothers did. Let's try to get rid of him. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of, the, of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice that Stephen hasn't defended himself once in this message. He hasn't tried to protect his image. He hasn't even tried to protect his own earthly life. Instead, he has sought to use this platform to testify to the God of glory, to the name of Jesus and his good news. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So who gives Stephen such courage and loving boldness. Is it, is it himself? Absolutely not. Stephen is full of the Spirit of God dwelling inside of him, and his eyes 
His eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning Son of Man. Jesus seated at the right hand of God is the most frequent expression used to describe Jesus in his exalted heavenly position. But here, Stephen sees Jesus standing. Luke records it twice for emphasis. In Jesus standing, we are reminded of two realities. One is that Jesus is the righteous judge. So, so even in the injustice of Stephen being killed, the righteous judge sees. And he is not blind to wrong being done to his people. Secondly, Jesus stands as the receiver, the one who is honoring Stephen and will welcome him, honor him at his earthly death. Imagine when you greet someone of honor, you don't remain in your seat kind of slumped over like, hey, no, you actually get up, at least you should, like you get up, you shake a hand, you look him in the eye and you say, because it, it demonstrates honor, it demonstrates love. Well, Jesus is standing to honor one of his sons, one of his ambassadors, one of his witnesses. The victor, the son of man in all glory sees he is present with Stephen in this horrific moment. In Acts 7, and to this day the Lord reigns despite the schemes of man. The Lord rules despite man's attempt to thwart the advance of the kingdom and the exaltation of the king of kings. As Stephen describes the risen and resurrected Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the anger of the Sanhedrin crescendos, for they continued to reject that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Verse 57, they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. The irony here of Stephen calling out their uncircumcised ears, and here they literally demonstrate, no, yes, our ears are closed off. We're pushing aside yet another of God's servants in the call to repent and believe. Verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul now is introduced into the storyline. Saul, who will, became, who will become Paul, the central figure of most of the book of Acts. In Acts 9, we see Saul dramatically confronted by Jesus Christ. Theologian Frederick Buchner writes this, Stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, is not easy. You do not get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles, and even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business, he writes. To prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye out on their things until they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing, young, arch-conservative Jew named Saul who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. He becomes a central figure of the New Testament church in the book of Acts because God's grace is good and God's grace transforms, radically transforms. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. That moment brings our minds back to the death of Jesus on the cross, even in death calling out for the forgiveness of those involved, even in death here keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord, not on earthly vengeance, and then he passes, or as Luke describes it, he falls asleep, which is often how the scriptures des uh, describe believers falling asleep, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 being a couple examples. But falling asleep reminds us of the peace that we have in Christ, 
even and especially in death, even in such a chaotic and horrific moment as this. He falls asleep. The believer falls asleep in death and wakes up in glory. Wakes up in glory. A couple encouragements as we look at this passage here on New Year's Eve. To those who have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, close your ears no longer. Stop closing your ears. Stop being resistant. Repent from being stiff-necked and stubborn. Let's just call it what it is. It's what the scriptures call it. Repent from being resistant to the goodness of the Lord. Resist it no longer. He is too good. He's too gracious for you to continue to push him aside. I had to hear the gospel multiple times before I put my trust in the Lord. I remember specifically some moments along the way pushing him aside. And by God's grace, he continued to pursue me. And anybody who confesses Christ in here, you probably have a very similar story. May today, as the calendar turns, be that day for you to put your trust in the Lord. Because one day it changed for me. To those who are Christ followers, let us pursue a heart posture that is tender toward the Lord. Tender toward His good commands. Where is your heart resisting? Is there a stiff-necked posture in you? Is there an area of your life, in a sense, that you've pushed Jesus aside? Said, ah, just sit on the shelf over there. I'm going to control this one. May Jesus reign and rule over all of our lives. May we pursue a posture of repentance and faith in the year ahead. Let's not resist the Spirit's work in us because His Spirit's, the Spirit's work in us is for our good, our joy, our freedom. Stephen is described as being full of grace and power and he could be described in that way because he was being led by and dependent on the Spirit of God. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, the Son of God, and he knew how dearly loved and how secure he was in the love of God the Father. For our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is full of grace and power, not lacking in anything, not running out, not deficient, full of grace and power. So may our lives be described in the same way in the year ahead, not for our glory, but for the glory of our God who has been at work since Genesis and continues to be at work in and through his people on the disciple-making mission that we have been called to, that we have opportunity before us in the year ahead so that more and more people might come to know the God of glory personally through Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reminder through Stephen's message that you are a God who appears and speaks and sends and promises and fulfills those promises and rescues people who cry out to you. You are a God who humbles the proud and lifts up the broken. You are a God of justice, holiness, and altogether goodness. Lord, give us a tender spirit toward you in the year ahead. Give us ears that are open and hearts that welcome your living and active word. We don't want to depend upon ourselves in the year ahead. We want to fully and wholeheartedly depend upon you, for you are the faithful one. You are the righteous one. You are exalted above all. So help us. Help us be a people marked by your grace and power as a way of life. May you, our God of glory, be the one magnified through both the mundane of life and the monumental big moments that are before us in 2024. May we gather a year from now and testify to your goodness your nearness, your faithfulness in our lives and the lives that we are on mission to. We trust you, Jesus, and thank you that you are trustworthy in all ways and at all times. We pray this in your name.
Amen. Let's, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can entrust our lives, our whole of our lives, to a faithful Lord in the year ahead.